So it is good to be together. So by now you have um, started likely reading through your Bible, and if you have not, um, maybe talk with somebody this morning if you need a little more encouragement in that. But please talk to somebody this week and get started on that. We want to um, meet with the Lord daily, and reading through is just a great pursuit. Let's pray so we can just all calm ourselves before the Lord. <clears throat> Lord, we thank you that your kindness has led us to repentance. Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the cooler air and your mercies that are new every morning. Lord, you cause the sun to rise and the sun to set each and every day, which conveys to us your faithfulness. Lord, we thank you that you are faithful when we are unfaithful, that you are a God who loves and forgives and is just um, overflowing with love for your children, that, that you are intimately involved in every detail of our lives. Lord, that you have come to redeem us, to sanctify us, to purify us, that we might live forever with you, that we look forward to the day of eternity when we shall see you face to face, Lord, that we may behold your glory. Lord, I thank you that here you have given us the Holy Spirit to lead us and to guide us, Lord, to convey your thoughts to us. I thank you for your word, Lord, that it would be a treasure to us, because through it we get you. And we know you more through it. As we open the word, we see you all throughout the pages, the redemptive story. Lord, we are grateful. We come this morning humble before you. I pray, Lord, that as we come to your word, that you would be our teacher, that you would allow us to see the places of our hearts where sin remains and that we want to root out. Lord, I pray that you would, by your power of your Holy Spirit, give us strength to do that, that we would be... Um, hard in our pursuit to weed out any sin that remains, that we might more fully glorify you, that we might more fully um, impact the gospel to those around us, or that we might live pleasing to you. I thank you for each woman this morning, their faithfulness to be here, for the children and the things that they are learning. I pray, Lord, that you would give extra blessing to the women there this morning who are with them, that you might, again, impact their hearts as they share with the children this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, disciplines. We've been here a few weeks together, and I'm going to um, just test us this morning. So, I'm going to begin and just shout out the next words in our, um, our aim for our time together, our purpose. So, the purpose of Wellspring is to equip and encourage the women at Grace Bible to... Shepherd their hearts toward Jesus Christ with the Word of God so that they live out gospel, gospel-transformed lives, thus strengthening the church in its gospel purpose. Very good. We're going to turn over our notebooks then and continue on with the disciplines. Good job, really. Um, we want to keep that always before us. So the heart is our discipline one. She prayerfully shepherds her heart toward God through the word of God, and in particular, the gospel. As we learned and have learned and will continue to bring before us that our hearts are in desperate need of our God, and it's our good to be near him. And as we bring our hearts to the word of God, we grow in our knowledge of him and our understanding of him, and our affections for him will grow. We bring our hearts to his word, his provision for us, in his love and care for us, 
has given it to us to guide our hearts. He'll do the work that needs to be done as we faithfully bring our hearts near his word. And we battle for our hearts. So we said, as Ezra did, remember from last week, Ezra set his heart. He resolved. He determined to study the word of God. We must do that setting of our hearts as well. We're continually reminded of the gospel, of who we once were, wicked, in opposition to Christ, lost, without hope, rebellious, and the list goes on. God gave the righteous one, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins, and he was raised to life again, overcoming sin and death. The gospel is a vital gift from God, not only for salvation, but also to enable us to deal with the ongoing activity of sin in our lives. So we need the gospel every day. So now we must be about shepherding, counseling, leading, and guiding our hearts to the word of God to meet with him there. This takes discipline. This takes resolve. So as we grow in our love for Christ, we're going to um, desire that time more and more. We're going to long for that more and more in his word. And that overflows to the home. She ministers to those in her household with her heart for God and for the gospel. We want to give off an aroma of Christ to those in our home, of one who loves God and cares for others, first in her home, for their hearts before the Lord. Like Ezra, we want to practice these things which the word calls us to. As women, we want the law of God to always be on our hearts and on our lips. As we feed upon him, we can feed those in our home, too, with his word. We will be purposeful to minister to the needs of our household relationships. We'll draw out, we will ask questions, and we will encourage the gospel realities. As we talked about last week, the first place where the gospel ought to be displayed is in our homes. We practice, as Ezra did here, and we show that what the gospel has accomplished in us first. And then ministry, with the heart for God and the gospel, and fulfilling her ministry within her household, she steps into the church to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. Ezra, again, set his heart to study the scriptures, then to practice it, and here in Discipline 3, ministry, Ezra taught the scriptures. God has graciously placed us in a body of Christ, the body of Grace Bible. The gospel and its, all of its implications ought to always be on our lips as we talk with one another, to encourage one another, right? As we have in our homes, like those in our body, and all those that God brings across our path gospel must be on our lips. We want to always be pointing one another to the cross of Christ, to him alone. Well, the scripture differs from an encyclopedia or Wikipedia. When we use an encyclopedia, we don't read other articles to understand the one that you're reading at the moment, right? One article has no connection to another. There are no overarching themes. In the Bible, however, every passage is dependent on the whole And the whole Bible is held together by interdependent themes that run through every passage, like rebar in concrete. These themes give us a sense of identity, of purpose, and direction that will fundamentally alter the way that I think, that I desire, the things that I desire, and how I speak and how I act. The sad fact is that many are simply not biblical in the way that they use the Bible. Being biblical does not merely mean quoting words from its pages. 
being truly biblical means that my counsel reflects the entire counsel of God's word. The Bible is a narrative, a story of redemption, and its chief character is Jesus Christ. He's the main theme, and he is revealed in every passage of scripture. Lasting change begins when our identity, our purpose, and sense of direction are defined by God's story. So we want to use the the Bible rightly. We want to use it biblically. So today we're going to take out our outline. And we're going to review first what we have learned about the heart. And then we're going to examine our hearts to see where the sin of pride is certain to be lurking. So first I have an illustration for us. It's helpful for us to try to continue to understand God's word rightly, what it is and what it isn't. So on your outline, you're going to see an illustration for discipline one, the heart, the relationship between the word of God and the God of the word. So it's hard to imagine this morning on this beautiful morning that it is 112 degrees out and you are hiking in the desert, in the mountains. Your water is gone and you are off the trail and you are certainly lost. You're hot, almost to the point of delirious, and you've lost all sense of direction. You're afraid to move because one more step is going to take you, perhaps, from where you should be. And you're really nervous. You're really frightened by this. How important is it at that moment to be rescued? Well, you're, it's a matter of life and death now, so it's very important. You need to be rescued. Now imagine the whole time that you're out there that you have a satellite phone in your pocket. In that condition, you need to be rescued. You're going to die, but you have a satellite phone. It's the one means to the one end that you have to be rescued, right? You just need to dial and your rescuer is on the other line. Well, you would protect that phone at all costs, right? You wouldn't lose sight of it. You wouldn't lay it down. You wouldn't step on it. You would cherish it. Because it's the one means to the end. But sometimes when something is real important, we forget that it's not the goal itself. We put the emphasis and the value on the means, not on the goal. Said another way, sometimes we can talk about the word of God, the means to, but forget God. He is our goal. So imagine picking up that phone and you're still in your desperate condition And instead of contacting your rescuer, you start flipping through Pinterest. Or you check your email or Instagram or play a a game. Right? It's ridiculous to play in your phone when you need to be rescued. And you never use it to talk to your rescuer. That is foolish. But that's what we do if we interact with the word and don't seek God himself in it. It's like being in a desert, using your phone to play a game, but not calling your rescuer. It's not okay to only come to the Word to get the right answers, to know more intellectually, or to check a box, this is what I should do, but not meet with God. Do you see the difference? I have to shepherd my heart toward the Word of God, right? Toward God, through the Word of God. The word is precious, but it's not our ultimate goal. God himself is our goal. So discipline one is about 
getting our heart near its rescuer, its deliverer, its savior, coming to the word of God to meet with the God of the word, cherishing my time with the precious savior, my precious rescuer, my redeemer. That must be our goal, to know God. And so the word is precious and we treasure it. It is our one means to our one goal, Christ. Like that satellite phone, we must not neglect God's word, putting it aside, because that's how we draw near to him. So let's be the kind of women, when we interact with the word, that we would always be concerned with meeting with him. And that takes conscious effort to see the word as a way to engage with God. So let's review from last week. Discipline one, the heart, is the, I'm sorry, the title today is The Heart, A Biblical Survey of the Heart, Part 2. Well, what is the heart? Do you remember? Can you tell me some things you remember about what we learned about the heart? It's the inner man. Very good. It's where God examines us, and he never overlooks our heart, right? It's a seat of doubt, but it's also the seat of faith and obedience. We learned that the heart and mind are synonymous with one another. It's the center of our personality, our will, our emotions, and our thoughts. Everything flows from the heart. It's the place where God reveals himself. It's where conversion takes place, right? When we say to heart, we're talking about you. It's all of you. It's the totality of who you are, who we are. So again, it's the focal point of God's evaluation of us. When we stand before him, he will not neglect our hearts. What is the condition of our heart? Well, it fails me. It's beyond my own ability to cleanse. It's the inward source of defilement and foolishly invites spiritual darkness. It's deceitful. It's desperately wicked. Knowing what we know about the heart, we learned that following our heart is unwise and it is worldly. And now we understand Proverbs twenty-eight twenty-six a little better. He who trusts in his own heart is a fool, but he who walks wisely will be delivered. Well, is the heart alert to this? Is it aware of how devastated this condition is? No, because it's easily deceived. Even when surrounded by blessing, right? It's easily deceived. It forgets God. God says there's nothing more deceitful. It can be deceived by others, and I can deceive my own heart. So, I have a heart that fails me beyond my own cleansing, source of defilement, foolishly invites greater spiritual darkness. It's easily deceived, and it's the most exceptional deceiver. And yet, we learn the highest calling of the heart is to love our Lord with all of our heart, mind, soul. To love God not with part of it, but with all of this heart. So we've got this massive eternal gulf between what our heart really is and what I'm called to do, to love God. Does God see this predicament? He does, and he's the only one who sees it rightly. He says, I am the Lord, the searcher of the heart. So what's the greatest need of the human heart? Well, the first is that it needs to be cleansed. It needs to be changed. It needs to be made new. And that we're responsible to do it. But what we're incapable of doing, God comes in and says, I will do it. We must admit our own inability in that and plead with God. 
I can't do this. Will you do it for me? We can trust God's promise. He will do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. We see why the Son of God came to suffer, to bear away our wicked hearts in his body on the cross, and to give us a new heart, a heart capable now of loving him, that we would understand and treasure the hope that we have in our rescuer, our deliverer. And we treasure this hope anew each time we see and confess our sin and go to the cross again. Well, who has, what has God provided for our hearts? Those who are in Christ Jesus have a new heart, yet we learn there's a residue of sin, a flesh that remains. We need to starve out that flesh that loves itself. And we're going to hear more about that this morning. We need to feed our heart with God's word, his provision for our hearts. And he wants our hearts to be in full contact with his word. Today we're going to look specifically at what the word says about a prideful heart and the danger to which pride exposes to our hearts. And I want to remind you that God chooses weak vessels to fulfill his good purposes. I stand before you as one who's been redeemed by God, yet battle the sin of pride continually in my own heart. The sin of pride shows its ugly head very often in my own life. So I share today, and I'm right there with you in the trenches, okay? God's power is displayed in us as we fight, as we battle against sin, as we put it to death. I am simply a mouthpiece today. I'm right there with you. So we're going to begin our study today in Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 20. So on the back of your outline. So let's open up to Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 20. We won't have quite as many verses as last week. This is Moses giving instruction regarding a king someday. So starting in 14. When you come to the land that the Lord your God has given you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you, who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself, or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses, since the Lord has said to you, You shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. Then we're going to look at verse 18. We're going to watch. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priest. So who's going to write it? It says the king will write this law. A copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priest. It shall be with him, and he shall read it all of his days, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel." So the king is to write a copy of the law himself. It's to be in his presence. He's to read it all the days of his life. Why? So that he'll learn to fear the Lord through obedience 
through this word. The word will prevent him, it says, from lifting up his heart above others in arrogance and pride, from thinking that he is better than all the rest. He needs the word close to his heart so that he doesn't exempt himself from the standard of everyone else. The king of Israel was to be on level ground with all of those around him. And what would do the leveling? It tells us God's law, God's word, God's revelation of himself. So the great leveler of all of us is the word of God. It's the word that will prevent us from lifting ourselves high above others. We all have a tendency to exempt ourselves from standards placed upon us as if there's some kind of exception, that we're something special, something privileged. What we need is to be continually exposed to the word at the heart level, to prevent us from lifting ourselves up above others, to being prideful. Or we think that we somehow are above those around us. We quickly point our finger to those who are not as good as we are or who have been caught in great sin. We ought to seek a humble attitude through time with him and seek to have a but for the grace of God there go I attitude if we're living in obedience to his word it is only because the grace of God has prevailed in us no one is morally upright rather than feeling superior to those who practice sin who ought not to condemn them but to feel deeply grateful that God has saved you from a life like that or perhaps rescued from this sin Our hearts desperately need his word. We want to be women who are in God's word, not to check off boxes or to impress anybody like we learned, but to know God. And we need to come to his word saying, if I don't see you, if I don't get you through these pages, I'm going to shrivel up and die. And spiritually speaking, that will be true. You will shrivel up your lives. Your spiritual lives will not have power. It's important. And when we open his word, we have to pray. And there's an example that we handed out today, and I'm going to read it to us, and then you may use this, um, either use it the way it is, or um, or make it your own. Change it. It's an example, though. I intend this time in your word to be an expression of worship of you, desire for you, love for you, need of you, and dependence on you. Any of this and all of this is only possible through your Son, Jesus Christ, who is my Savior. I approach you through him, my substitute and high priest. I have your word opened before me because you have revealed yourself there more clearly than any place, and I long to know you more. I desire to see you in all your glory in the pages before me. I simply and humbly draw near to you to study you. Nearness to you through these pages of scripture is my good. I also have your word open before me because I need to learn more of the nature of my sin and fallenness before you so that I might better understand what danger I truly was in and what dangers still lurk within me and so that I might see the sin that provoked your righteous wrath toward your son and your grace that moved you to act a savior toward me in him. Your word is open before me so that I might undergird my life again today and your saving heart and motive in the gospel of your son who overcame the penalty of my sin and the power of my sin to enslave me. I need the foundation of your gospel under me clearly so that I can see just how you have equipped me through it 
to fight against my sin and to fight for obedience to you through Jesus Christ. I am here to rehearse your bedrock promises in the gospel to my soul. I have your word open before me also to study what righteousness and holiness of life look like for one who has been made into a new creature in Christ. By your grace and power, as I see holiness of life placed in front of me in the pages of scripture, I long to better align my life and behavior with what pleases you. I desire my heart and mind to be full of you because of what these pages reveal to me about you. I long for you to spill out of me into my home and wherever you lead me today. All who come in contact with me today must interact with a woman whose heart has drawn near to you. Their best hope for salvation or for growth in the gospel will come from one who has searched for you in your word and gazed upon your son in the gospel. In Christ's name I pray, amen. A humble prayer to come to God's word. Now, when we hear the word arrogant or pride, it's pretty easy to think of someone else, right? Pride is a lot easier to identify, especially in others, which is pride itself. So let's define pride as you did in your homework. And the dictionary says, a high or inordinate opinion of one's own dignity, importance, merit, or superiority, whether treasured in the mind or displayed in conduct. And eventually, all of that will be displayed in our conduct, right? Because a heart and mind overflow into our actions. And this sin of pride is displayed in so many different ways in our lives. Last week, we saw the condition of our hearts, that we're prone to deceive and to being deceived. So just to give us a little taste, get our minds thinking and our hearts open, we want to understand how pride displays itself and see it in our own hearts. So I'm going to ask a few questions. This is from 41 Evidences of Pride by Nancy Lee DeMoss. I'm not going to read 41, but it is a long list. Are you quick to find fault with others? Do you have a sharp, critical tongue? Are you impatient? Do you frequently correct or criticize your husband or others in position of leadership? Do you give undue time and attention and effort to physical appearance, hair, makeup, clothing, weight, your body? Or are you proud that you don't spend time on that? It's both sides, right? Are you proud of the schedule you keep, how disciplined you are, how much you are able to accomplish in a day? Or are you proud about how laid back you are? Are you driven to receive approval, praise, or acceptance from others? Do you generally think your way is the right way, the only way, the best way? Do you have a sensitive spirit? Are you easily offended? Get your feelings hurt easily. Are you guilty of pretense, trying to leave a better impression of yourself than really is true? Do you have a hard time admitting when you are wrong? Do you have a hard time confessing your sin? Do you have a difficult time sharing your real spiritual needs and struggles with others? Are you excessively shy? Do you resent being asked or expected to serve family or your parents or others? Do you become defensive when you're criticized or corrected? Are you a perfectionist? Do you get impatient with people who are not? Do you tend to be controlling of others? 
Does your husband or anyone else feel like he can never measure up to your expectations? Do you often complain about the weather, your health, your circumstances, your job, or your church? Are you more concerned about your own problems and needs or burdens than you are about others' concerns? Do you worry about what others think of you? Too concerned about your reputation or maybe your family's reputation? Do you neglect to express gratitude for the little things to God and to others? Do you neglect prayer and intake of the word? Do you avoid being around certain people because you feel inferior to them, like you won't measure up? When's the last time you said these words? I was wrong. Will you forgive me? And you are, are you sitting there thinking how many questions apply to someone else you know? I find that list very convicting. How about you? And we know that repentance must accompany our conviction if there's to be lasting change in our lives. We need to be reminded that pride is something that we all struggle with, but we must guard against that being okay, right? Yeah, I struggle with pride, or whatever sin it is. I'm just like everybody else. We begin to evaluate sin, becoming proud that we see sin, but not battling it to eradicate it from our lives. We learn to see sin as God sees it. And we're going to look at scripture further this morning, what he says about that particular sin and what it cost to pay that penalty of the sin. And it will break us. A broken and contrite spirit, O oh Lord, you will not neglect because he will see, we're going to see that that sin is against God. So we cannot get comfortable with our sin. We must not. We must eradicate it from our lives. It is a battle. So we're going to go to our outlines, and we're going to look at Proverbs 16.5. Would you turn there with me? I think it's so good for us to just put our eyes on God's words and see them before us. So let's look at Proverbs 16.5 and see what God says about pride. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. God hates it. His response is that it will not go unpunished. The Son of God, He was punished for our pride and our arrogance at the cross. God didn't change how He felt about that. Christ became sin. He became my sin and He became your sin that our arrogance was to God. So the next one in your outline is Hosea 13, 4 through 6, along with Deuteronomy. Um, I'm going to be uh, looking at Hosea first. It's a clear statement from God about the way he saw himself with Israel at the time of Exodus and the wilderness wanderings. So Hosea 13, 4 through 6. Yet I have been the Lord your God since the land of Egypt, and you are not to know any God except me, for there is no Savior besides me. I cared for you in the wilderness, in the land of drought, and they had their pasture, they became satisfied. And being satisfied, what happened, does it say? Their heart became proud. They forgot me. And here's a place where we see how dangerous a prideful heart is. It leads to forgetfulness, divine forgetfulness, spiritual amnesia. 
we forget God. There is this inherent danger in our satisfaction with being comfortable, having God's provision, being blessed by him, having satisfaction. We need to watch out, watch over this heart. That's when our heart becomes proud. And that's when our hearts forget God. We might be tempted to think that we it would never happen to us. Right? I can handle blessing. I can handle it. Pride is showing its ugly head again. None of us are exempt from that. Never a day that we do not have to watch out over this heart. It's so much easier to cry out to God when things are hard, right? I think we would all agree. When relationships are hard or you have financial problems or your health is failing, those trials help us to see our need for the Lord, but we are always in need of Him. What can we do to be just as intentional about seeking the Lord when we're satisfied and comfortable? It's what we've been talking about, right, all along. Discipline one. We must bring our hearts to the Word of God. He is the one who keeps us mindful of our constant ongoing need for Him. And so we do this through His Word. So in Hosea, we see that one way pride shows its up in our lives is that we forget God. But when we find ourselves using the excuse, say, busy for forgetting God, for not meeting with Him in His Word, or not praying, see, that's the part that's so tricky about rooting out pride in our hearts, is that wears a lot of different faces. We don't always recognize what's going on behind the sin, under the sin, around the sin. So listen as I read Second Chronicles, and I'm going to be uh, in chapter... Sorry, verse 1 and then 4 and 5 and then 16 through 18 if you're going to follow along. And all the people of Judah took Uzziah, who was 16 years old, and made him king. And he did right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father Amaziah had done. He continued to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who had understanding through the vision of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God prospered him. King Uzziah did right in the eyes of the Lord. And it says he continued to seek God. As long as he did, God prospered him. Verses 6 through 15 describe all kinds of victories and achievements. And it tells us why those are there. Because in verse 7, God helped him. And then in 15, hence his fame spread afar, for he was marvelously helped by God until he was strong. Marvelously helped by God. But what happened? He became strong. His heart became proud. Remember, pride is an overflow of the heart. It's the same danger we saw in Hosea just a minute ago. Success is very dangerous to our hearts. And it may be the very thing that we pursue sometimes, right? Sometimes more than holiness and humility. Well, verse 16 said, His heart was so proud that he acted corruptly, and he was unfaithful to the Lord his God, for he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Now, does that sound unfaithful? How is entering the temple to burn incense a corrupt act? How is that being unfaithful to the Lord? Then Azariah the priest entered after him, and with him eighty priests of the Lord, valiant men. They opposed Uzziah the king and said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. 
Get out of the sanctuary, for you have been unfaithful, and you will have no honor from the Lord God. Uzziah was unfaithful to the Lord because he overstepped the boundaries that God had given him. Lord had marvelously helped him, he'd granted him successes and victories, but service in the temple was reserved for the priests, the descendants of Aaron. It wasn't his to take. Burning incense wasn't a bad thing, but Uzziah was not qualified to do so. It wasn't his role. How about us? Ever tempted to grasp authority that hasn't been given to you? Ever tempted to work around your husband or your boss? Rather than humbling yourselves and going to them, going to your husband or your boss or your teacher or your parent or an elder or a small group leader, and not asking for guidance and leadership, their permission maybe if necessary, a lot of times we want whatever we want and we want it now. We don't want to take the time because we're busy, remember? Rather than thinking what would honor God and taking the time to do that. Now maybe Uzziah thought he was entitled to that. After all, he was the king. But again, he wasn't entitled. It's so easy to have an attitude of entitlement, isn't it? The world screams entitlement to us. And if our hearts are not in full contact with the word, we begin to believe this as well. This is a lie. We might think, I'm entitled to something for me. I have a right to me time. Entitled to respect, especially for my children. Appreciation or comfort. Here's what helps me see this in my heart. How I react here when I'm not treated the way I think I should be treated. How I think I'm entitled to be treated. It's a good way practice to pay attention to our heart's responses, its reactions, when we don't get what we think we deserve. We live in a culture that says we deserve a break today. We deserve time alone or respect, happiness or help or retirement. That's pride because what we think what we want is more important than maybe what God has given us. Listen, if God sees that you need something, he will give it to you. And if you don't have something, it's possible that God sees that you don't need it at this time. How about laziness? This could come from a sense of entitlement, right? Because I think I'm entitled to do this with my time. What might it look like? It might look like overindulgence in sleep or entertainment Magazines, movies, shopping, computer time, reading blogs, Facebook, email. And none of those are bad in themselves. But we can just mindlessly allow ourselves to get distracted until we suddenly realize that what should have taken a few minutes has taken an hour or two or three. And we have neglected our God-given responsibilities. Laziness, really, is putting anything ahead of my responsibilities. For selfish gain, right? It's for me. And I want to say again, it's not that those things are bad in themselves. But anytime we put what we want to do, things we're entitled to ahead of what God has given us to do, like spending time with our husbands, or spending time in his word, or caring for others, reaching out to the lost, Anytime we're putting ourselves, which is what the world says we should be doing, there's pride. 
It's a great passage ahead that helps us to see how one sin can easily lead to another kind of sin. Pride in the heart can lead to a sense of entitlement, which may lead to overstepping authority or laziness. You see, sin has partners. There are connections. Sin always brings along somebody else. Well, we're going to look at this in James 3.13, and I don't think it's on your notes, but you can add that. James 3.13. And there's two sides to this. So we're going to see. I can just find James. In chapter 2, James has been dealing with those in the body who were drawing party lines and showing preferential treatment for the rich. And so they dishonored the poor. He gives instructions and warnings. And then, in chapter 3, verse 13, he says, my eyes, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am be tempted by God, for cannot, God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. I don't think that's it, is it? How about 3.13? Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly and spiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. See, if we have bitter jealousy in our hearts, if we have selfish ambition, it says it positions us to be arrogant, to be prideful. Left unchecked will lead to arrogance. So we need to be wise and watch over our hearts. Again, this passage in James helps us to see how easily sin brings along another kind of sin. The good news to that, though, when we fight sin strategically, strategically, by his grace, we may be defeating other sins that are along with. It's a chain reaction like dominoes versus just uh, dealing with one, jealousy or selfish ambition. What's the root of that? Arrogance and pride. We might actually make ground with other sins when we battle one. So, so far we've seen a few faces of pride. Forgetting God, having a sense of entitlement, overstepping boundaries, laziness, bitter jealousy, um, selfish ambition. And if we go after the root, we will see... Um, we must see and repent of pride. We actually will be doing battle with other sins again. We can train ourselves and even ask others to help us to make these connections, to see our hearts. We could probably be done right now, right? There is This is convicting and there's a lot to take in, but we're going to hang in there. God may be revealing um, places of pride in our hearts and it's a blessing that we're able to see this sin, okay? It's a blessing from him to root it out. We want to purify our hearts. And the gospel truth tells me that he has paid the penalty for this sin. I'm no longer bound by that, but now I'm in a position to battle this sin and to overcome and to root this out. I have a new ability. Sin no longer is master over me. So let's look at some other faces of pride. We're in Second uh, Chronicles, King Hezekiah. You remember the story. In those days, King Hezekiah became mortally ill, and he prayed to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to him and gave him a sign. But Hezekiah gave no return for the benefit he received. The NIV said he did not respond to the kindness of the Lord because his heart was proud. 
So another face of pride, he didn't respond to the kindness God showed him. He wasn't thankful. How might we fail to respond to God's kindness? Romans 2, 4 says, The kindness of God leads us to repentance. Do you hate admitting your sin? Do you seek forgiveness when you've sinned against someone or your sin has affected someone else in a way? We can be tempted to ignore it, to think everybody should just move on and forget it. It's not that big of a deal. That is a failure to repent, a failure to respond to God's kindness. And believers ought to be repenters. How about contentment? Discontentment and complaining are failures to respond to God's kindness. A failure to recognize God's kindness to us in all circumstances, in every circumstance. A complaining attitude is so easy to fall into about our appearance, bad hair day, bad hair day how hard we work, how tired we are, about unbelieving family members, difficulties we have with people we live with or work with. Financial problems, self-pity, because we just think our lives should be different. Maybe you think, this isn't how I pictured my life to be. Complaining in any form reflects a discontented heart. It is discontent because at a heart level, we think we deserve something better than God has given us. Something different than we have right now. We don't really believe that these circumstances are God's good for me his very best for me at this moment. And believing that is a failure to respond to God's kindness. And 2 Chronicles 32 says that it's evidence of a prideful heart. And they look at that, the consequences of that pride at the end of that, in verse, uh, at the end of verse 25. Therefore, wrath came on him and Judah and Jerusalem. And Judah and Jerusalem. Do you realize that the impact our sin and uh, pride has on others around us, that they may experience the consequences of our sin as well. But look at verse uh, 26. However, Hezekiah humbled the pride of his heart. Who humbled it? Hezekiah humbled it. And that gives us encouragement, doesn't it, that God would be willing to turn back his wrath in the face of repentance. And the hope of believers who live after the cross is that Christ bore our sin on the cross. He gives us a new heart. And again, we have a new ability. We can't remind each other enough. Well, on your outline, Obadiah 2.3 and Jeremiah 49.16 are another way pride may be displayed. He is prophesying against the country of Edom. They were descendants of Esau. Remember, Esau was Jacob's twin. And Jacob is who God renamed Israel. So Israel, the descendants of Jacob and Edom, are the descendants of his twin brother Esau. So there's a lot of animosity between these two countries, and so God is prophesying against Edom. So here we're going to see another face of pride. Obadiah 2.3 Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You are greatly despised. The arrogance of your heart has deceived you. You see it? The arrogance of your heart deceives You who live in the clefts of the rock, in the loftiness of your dwelling places, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to earth? What face of pride do we see here? The arrogance of your heart has deceived you. So here we see it again. The heart is easily deceived. It's the best deceiver. 
So how were the Edomites deceived? Well, God is saying he's going to bring them down, and they persist in prideful self-arrogance and self-reliance, saying, who will bring me down? That's proof of an arrogant heart, of a deceived heart. It's refusing to believe God's word. How could prideful self-confidence or self-reliance or self-sufficiency show up in our hearts? How many of you pray about decisions you need to make? You do pray and you should pray, right? You don't know what to do, so you're going to pray. You need wisdom. Praise God that through Christ, God has made a way for us to go and seek prayer from him at the throne of grace. It's what he wants us to do. So what about prayer when we're talking about deceptiveness of an arrogant heart? Well, it's important that we understand, again, watching this heart where it's deceitful. There is a right way to pray when we humbly go before him and thank God. Ask God for guidance to direct us to biblical principles to help in our decisions, to seek wisdom in choosing people who can help us, who offer wise counsel. Prayer is a time to examine our motives, admit how easily we are deceived, and how easily we persuade others, right, to do what we want and to admit that, to confess sin and to remember the cross. Prayer is an amazing gift God has given us. It's a time to draw near to him. But what happens when a prideful heart intersects with prayer? Not talking about a prideful heart now who's coming to seek repentance. I'm talking about the heart that is coming in humility, not about that, ready to confess and repent. A heart that is not repentant, that is self-focused, maybe with selfish ambition or self-confidence. That heart might pray, but it doesn't humble itself before God and his word. It doesn't ex- examine itself. It doesn't really want counsel. Now, when I'm in that condition, when I have an unrepentant pride and heart, self-focused and self-grasping, my heels are dug in. I may very, very well even deceive myself and come away from prayer, having convinced myself in my heart that what I want is really God's leading, even if it's against his word, contrary to his words. That is serious. Do you see how prideful and dangerous that is? Because I convince myself in prayer to do what I want to do in the first place. That's hard to challenge, isn't it? If one of you has a concern about my decision and you come to me and you ask some really great questions and you raise some biblical principles, I might throw out the trump card. I've prayed about that. Now understand, there are plenty of times that we have prayed. And we have sought the Lord humbly in a biblical way. So we need to offer hope to one another, have hope in one another. But when that has been the case, we'll probably be open to those questions, right? And biblical counsel from others. See the difference? So let's be careful about how we ourselves pray and make decisions. Ask God to humble ourselves for help us to see where we might be deceiving ourselves. So here's the deal. Deceptiveness of pride is especially hard to battle with because the very nature of deception is that it's deceptive. We just don't see it. It's a blind spot in us. The only way that we can battle a foe that we can't see is with truth. Truth of God's word. We have to shepherd my heart with the truth of the gospel. And we help one another, right, from the body of Christ. Do you see how discipline one and two and three all flow together? There's protection in shepherding my heart with God's word 
and in being concerned with helping one another shepherding hearts as well. What, what are we to do? Deal with, pri- deal with that pride when it's exposed by God's grace in the gospel. These are the must. These are the things we must bring to the cross. Confess and repent and seek forgiveness from those who you sinned against in your pride. These are the things which Christ died for. Because pride exposes our heart to danger. So we have to ask God, please show me where that exists. Show me where I tend to be arrogant or where I am straight out arrogant. And God, give me eyes to see it. We need to ask him because it's easy for us to see pride in others, but not in ourselves. And he is a faithful father who will answer that prayer. That's the effect of sin in us. It blinds us. Sin blinds us to our own sin, to our own sin of pride. What do we do when we see others being arrogant? We should certainly see it as an opportunity to ask the Lord, God, make me nearsighted to see my sin before I see others. Help me see the log in my own eye, and the spot, the speck in my own eye, so that I'm, I'm sorry, help me see the log in my eye and repent so that I'm ready to help my sister see the speck in hers. So we humble ourselves and we repent of pride that he shows. Not praying is also a sure sign of pride in our hearts. Not seeking the Lord in prayer is like saying, I've got this. I know what's best. I got this. I could do this on my own. We're saying, I don't need you, God. Prayer is dependence upon our mighty God. So let's look at 1 Peter 5, 5 through 7. See what God says about humility, which is the opposite of pride. 1 Peter 5, 5 through 7. Well, what is humility? First of all, humility is nothing else but a right judgment of ourselves, says William Law. In the 18th century, A.W. Tozer says, The meek man is not a human mouse afflicted with his own sense of own inferiority. He has accepted God's estimate of his own life. In himself, nothing. In God, everything. He knows well that the world will never see him as God sees him, and he just has stopped caring about that. He's not concerned with others' opinions. 1 Peter 5, 5-7. I'm going to start in the middle of 5. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Interesting, isn't it, that he says, all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Humility is something that has to be lived out in our relationships. Left to myself, I'm not going to cede my need for humility. But when I come in contact with one another, when relationships come together, our hearts are exposed and we're in a better position to see it, right? Another blessing from the Lord. You know, like when you're criticized, for example, rebuked or admonished, it's so easy to feel hurt or misunderstood and defensive. But that's pride. As if feeling good about ourselves is more important than seeing an area where I need to grow. Now we must be very careful about how we go to others, right? In humility. The passage continues, Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, 
so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And he shows us how to humble ourselves, casting our cares on him because he cares for you. So he calls us to humble ourselves by accepting the care he has for us. It's actually pride if we reject his care. C.J. Mahaney says about this verse in his book, Humility, where there's worry, there's anxiousness, pride is at the root. When I'm experiencing anxiety, the root issue is that I'm trying to be self-sufficient. I'm acting independent of God. So the solution is to humble ourselves where? Verse 6, under the mighty hand of God. So when we need to humble ourselves before others, when we need to confess sin, or when we're criticized or rebuked, look beyond that person to the mighty God who cares for you. He is the one you are humbling yourself to. He is the one who is at work in you for good. Humility is having an accurate view of us and our Savior and seeing others as an instrument that he is using to purify us. The heart of humility is remembering the gospel and fleeing to God. It's crying out, admitting how prideful we are, and thanking and praising him for what he has done for us at the cross. God poured out his wrath against our pride. He set us free. We are no longer slaves to pride. That's what makes our repentance joyful. Remembering that Jesus is our only hope, and he is more than sufficient. He is our abundant hope for cultivating a heart of humility. And that being near him, being right with him, is better than anything our prideful hearts and attitudes will ever, ever offer to us. In Colossians 3, 12 through 14, not only will a humble heart draw us near to our Savior, it will also help us to draw near to one another. Watch what Paul starts out with this gospel identity in uh, verse 12. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved. There it is, who we are in Christ. Because of that, because we are chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, and you should do. Beyond all these, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Two things we sure don't want to miss. The command to be humble is grounded in our gospel identity, who we are in Christ. And if we are to wage war with pride and cultivate humility, we must feed our hearts a steady diet of the gospel. Humility grows out of a heart that cherishes Jesus Christ and the realities of the gospel. I must rehearse again and again and again who I once was, what Christ has done in my behalf, and who God now has made me. The second thing we don't want to miss is that humility serves a greater purpose. Humility is essential for building unity and love between believers. That displays the gospel, the work of the gospel, so the world will know that we are his disciples, right? And isn't that what we want? Not our own. We're his slaves, and he is a kind master. And he's entrusted us with this greatest treasure, the treasure of Christ's finished work on the cross to pay for sins, to pay for pride, so that we can walk in newness of life, the gospel realities, and we can live with one another in such a way that the world says, wow, look how they love one another. How do they do that? Why do they do that? 
That kind of living adorns the gospel and people ask questions. It puts Christ on display. It declares the power of the gospel to make us what we could never be apart from Christ. Philippians 2, 1 through 8, if you want to turn there, this is the perfect passage to end with because it brings us right back to the Savior, the only place we can go to cultivate a humble heart. Philippians 2, 1 through 8. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. That's what we're called to do, to be, not driven to please ourselves, but pursuing love, unity with the body of Christ. It's similar to Colossians 3. There is an appeal to unity and love. And that's, and what does that require? Verse 3. Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. There it is, humility. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Listen to what he says about our Savior. It's a familiar passage, so let's not miss it. Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Aren't we people who love to grasp, take hold of what we want? But Jesus didn't grasp. He emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, a slave. Jesus took the form of a slave. And being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And that is how we have received this enabling grace we talk about. The grace to turn from its pride, its many faces, to to humility and love. Because Jesus gave himself on the cross to bear away the penalty of our selfish ambition and sin. To break the power of sin over us and to give new life in a love relationship with him and with one another. That is the power of the gospel. These are the things we must bring to the cross. These are the things for which Christ died for. Let them go, repent, and follow after him. That's how we humble ourselves, by drawing near to the cross, where we find this glorious hope for living with one another in unity. We've been looking at all the ways that pride can get a foot in the door of our hearts, tempting us to forget God, often through success and blessing, not staying within our own authority, sense of entitlement or laziness, not responding to God's kindness, not repenting of sin, complaining, being discontent. So to battle pride, we need to always be on the lookout for its many faces. The list is endless. Being overly concerned with my appearance, being motivated by the approval of others, being irresponsible in my spending habits, or fear. Ladies, we can each struggle. They are pride. So many things. Laziness and complaining, vanity, fear, these are the sins that get our attention, the areas that we um, see our disobedience. But if we're diligent to think through, to find the sin behind the sin, we will often see some sort of pride or selfish ambition. And if we confess that and repent of that, we'll actually be getting after other sins that we're concerned about. It's much like a tree in the yard. We see the leaves and the branches on the tree, But we don't see the root of the tree until we start digging down deeper and deeper into the soil. If we're going to get rid of the tree, 
we must dig down and pull it out by the roots. If we simply pull off the branches or the leaves, the life of the tree is still in the roots. If I can root out the sin at the heart level, many other sins will be eradicated. God has made a way for us to overcome this sin of pride and every other sin by the cross. And we are grateful. And we need to be thinking about this continually and reminding one another over and over and over again. The gospel must always be in our hearts and on our lips. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have given us the Holy Spirit to help us to understand your words. Lord, we thank you again for your word. We pray, Lord, by your um, enabling spirit that we would be able to battle hard, that we would battle hard, that would we rely upon you, we would call out to you, cry out to you, that we might battle hard the sin that's in our heart, that we might eradicate it from us, that we would live holy and pure lives before you, a holy God. Thank you, Lord, that on the cross you died to save us from these sins. And, Lord, that we stand before you today as women who have been redeemed. And, Lord, um, you see us as though we have never sinned. But that sin remains, and we battle against it. Amazing truth, amazing love that you have died for us on our behalf. Lord, it's good to be near you. We thank you for your word and help us to treasure it more this week and grow our affections for you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.